0: Welcome back to Sad Girl Energy with Bria Hebert. I'm your host, Bria Hebert, and this is the podcast where we're busy doing sad girl shit. This is part two of our episode on trauma. I have it, you have it. Let's talk about a baby. Last week, we talked about my surgery, and this week we're going to talk about the complications that landed me back into the ER and my experience with PTSD. We're also gonna get into cognitive distortions and why some people are more likely to develop PTSD. So after I was released from the hospital, we went back to the Airbnb my mom had rented to help take care of me. And when I got there, I was in a lot of pain and discomfort. I was having a hard time finding a comfortable position to sit in, and I had to stay elevated, so I wasn't allowed to lay down. That was to help with any swelling that might develop. So I was having difficulties breathing. My breathing was quite shallow. It was very painful to breathe. It almost felt like there was concrete in my lungs, and it wasn't allowing me to take full, proper breaths. I tried laying on the couch, I tried laying in bed, I tried different amounts of pillows to prop myself up, but nothing was really working. So, my mom made the decision to call an ambulance. When the ambulance arrived, they took a look at me and they decided that they were going to bring me back to the hospital and take me to the ER. I was so exhausted, and the last thing I wanted to do was go back to the hospital. I just wanted to be around my mom and I wanted to be able to just like rest and be in my own space. And so, I was just so devastated to have to go back and it seems like a small thing but they didn't communicate to me why they were taking me to the hospital so then it caused me to freak out maybe this is a bigger deal especially because this was within about an hour of being released so i got in the ambulance and they asked me a bunch of questions they took some vitals i did see something funny recently i saw this girl post a tiktok and the caption was like when i asked the paramedics for the ox cord on the way to the hospital and then it's just a video of her in the back of the ambulance blasting schoolboy Q and I honestly wish I did that. I think my ambulance soundtrack would be the Hercules soundtrack. I think that's what would have made it a better trip to the hospital because then it could have at least distracted me from all the pain. Do I talk about things I've seen on TikTok too much? The hospital was about 40 minutes away from where I was staying and it was a excruciatingly long ride there. Every turn we made, every bump we went over, every pothole we hit, I could feel it in my entire body. It was so painful, I was so uncomfortable, and they couldn't give me any medication because there was a fear that I could potentially have to go back into surgery. When I got to the hospital, they filled out a bunch of paperwork for me to get me readmitted. And I don't really know what I expected to happen, but they kinda just dropped me off in the waiting room. And so I was just sitting there waiting to find out what happens next. I felt very helpless. I didn't really know how to navigate the situation. I was so exhausted. I was so groggy. I was in so much pain. I was so physically weak and I could barely talk because my mouth was still banded shut. I wasn't allowed to have anyone come to the hospital with me because of COVID. And I wish that I had advocated for myself more in that situation. I wish I had said, look, I just had surgery. I was just released from the hospital today. I can barely stand on my own. I can barely communicate. I need to have someone come with me in order to advocate for me. But that's not what happened. So I can't change the past. All I can do is use it as an opportunity to learn and advocate for myself in any medical context going forward. It can be as simple as requesting your doctor do a test, them refusing the test, and then you asking them to note down their refusal in your chart and this theme of kind of helplessness and confusion is something that paints this entire experience and kind of runs through this entire experience for me. So after about 30 minutes of waiting in the waiting room, I was then taken to a small examination room where I waited for another hour to see a nurse. I basically had to beg to have someone come to my room because I was in such excruciating pain. I didn't know what to do. I didn't know how to convince the people at the hospital to understand how much pain I was in because it was almost impossible to communicate how much pain I was in. And because I was waiting and sitting in this pain for so long, it made me feel like they didn't care, which obviously isn't the case. But that's how I felt in the moment because I did feel so helpless. I literally feel like my heart is going to stop. And it was a mind trip because I was like, I'm in the hospital. Why does no one care that I'm in pain? that's what I felt like and the problem was in this room there was a small bed to lay on but I wasn't allowed to lay down so I couldn't sit in a comfortable position which was irritating the pain I already had and kind of exasperating it another thing is I was supposed to be taking a combination of medications every two to three hours they were pain medications two different pain medications I was on antibiotics and anti-inflammatory medication and they wouldn't give me those medications in the hospital, and. I'd I wasn't able to take them myself. So I was without medication my entire time in the ER. So the nurse came in to do some blood work and also to do an EKG. Because I was having difficulty breathing and also because I was having really intense chest pain that felt as closely as I can describe it would be what I assume a heart attack feels like, it was sharp pain and I felt it when I was breathing or when I tried to breathe deeply and it almost stopped me from being able to breathe. They thought that I might have a blood clot which had traveled into my lungs and that can... Block the blood flow to the lungs so it can potentially be life threatening. And at this point, the pain kind of reached its maximum. It sounds very dramatic, I understand, but I honestly thought I was gonna die. I didn't think I was gonna die from a blood clot. I thought that I was gonna die from the amount of pain and the stress that it would put on my heart. It was so intense in my entire body. I was having a hard time staying conscious and I was worried what was gonna happen if I passed out because no one was around are really checking on me. I found myself getting lightheaded. I found myself getting dizzy. I found myself getting nauseous. But next, I did a CT scan and a chest x-ray because they were trying to find the clot that they thought was in my lungs. While I was waiting for the results from the chest x-ray and the CT scan, I finally had the chance to see a doctor. I went back into that little room that they had me in the exam room, and a doctor came in, and she told me that they were going to cut the bands that were keeping my mouth together and my new bite in place, at which point I started crying and she said to me she looked me dead in the eyes and said why are you crying and i was just so shocked and taken aback by the lack of compassion like to me doctors want to help people i was stunned i didn't even know how to respond it felt so invalidating it felt so unprofessional the reason i was crying is because i was back in the er the same day i was released from the hospital After having surgery, I was completely alone. I was barely able to communicate. I wasn't given any of my medication, so I was in an intense amount of pain. And then they were telling me that the three years I spent in braces, the 11 minor surgeries I had, the major surgery I had, the thousands of dollars I spent on these procedures and orthodontic treatment and my surgeon, that all was going to be for nothing because they were going to cut the bands that were allowing my jaw to heal in its new normal placement. And this had all happened while I had not slept for days in the midst of a global pandemic. So I personally felt like I had a lot of reasons to cry, but I couldn't communicate that. Like my brain couldn't even function enough to make a coherent sentence like that because I was so emotional, I was so exhausted, and I was in so much pain. And I couldn't handle the emotional and physical toll of the idea that all of that pain and suffering was for absolutely nothing. And I felt like there was no compassion for that. So I just told them that they're not gonna cut the bands. And I said that if it becomes an issue later on, and they have to, that's fine, we can reassess it then. But at this point, I'm not gonna let them cut anything. And when I say I told them, what I really mean is I was using the Notes app on my phone and my whiteboard to try to make short, readable sentences to communicate back and forth. And now, obviously, thinking back and analyzing the situation with a clearer mind... I'm able to look at it and say, okay, Bria, you were able to exert some agency in that situation. You did tell them, no, you're not going to do this. I think this is unnecessary at the moment. There's no reason to cut these bands. They're not interfering with anything medically. But in the moment, I felt helpless and I felt like they didn't understand what I was going through. They didn't understand the pain I was experiencing. They didn't understand how critical the situation felt to me. And I didn't feel like they were being empathetic or compassionate to everything I had gone through prior to arriving in the ER that day. For example, for me, if I saw that one of my patients had just had corrective jaw surgery and their mouth was banded shut, I would think, okay, what can I do to make communication for this patient easier? How can I help them communicate in a way that's comfortable and effective? Because doctors and nurses were constantly asking me questions and I was constantly having to retell these details and it was physically painful for me to do so. So after this conversation, the doctor sort of just left and didn't really communicate with me for the rest of my stay. I'm not sure what happened. I didn't have the energy to ask but after that a resident came up to me and told me that they thought I might have COVID at which point yes I cried again. I was just so exhausted from this bad news. And then I started thinking, what if I infected my roommate? Or what if I infected my mom? Or what if I infected Florence, the 94-year-old who was next to me at the hospital? Your mind just goes into the worst places. So then they gave me two COVID tests and we waited for the results on those. It was probably almost 11 p.m. by the time we finished that. So obviously I had to stay overnight at the hospital again. When I think back, I just think about all the physical pain and discomfort I was in, how much poking and prodding and uncomfortable positions I was put in, all the inspecting. It felt very invasive, it felt very intrusive, and I already felt vulnerable. Like for example, they didn't have any ice in the ER, so I wasn't able to ice my face. Ice was the only way to minimize the pain since I didn't have painkillers. I had an IV inserted, but it wasn't inserted properly, so I started bleeding into my IV, which was very uncomfortable and just an unnecessary pain. It wasn't necessary for me to go through that. I got a nosebleed and I bled into my mask, and they wouldn't give me a new mask, so I just had to sit in this bloody mask, and it was just dehumanizing. It made me feel like they didn't care about me. It made me feel unsafe. It felt unsanitary. They didn't have any pillows in the ER, and I wasn't allowed to sleep laying down, so I had to use my backpack and prop myself up with that. They wouldn't give me water, and I was really really thirsty. They didn't give me an IV pool, so I wasn't able to take myself to the washroom. I had no mobility because my IV line was attached to my bed. So it was all these small things that built up to make me feel neglected, and I couldn't wrap my head around the fact that this was happening in a hospital surrounded by medical professionals. So thankfully, I was moved into a little room off of the waiting room. Room that had a bed and that's where I stayed for the night and then there was kind of this in-between period where we were trying to figure out what was wrong with me waiting for results and eventually what they landed on was that I had pneumonia. So what they think happened is when they were removing that tube that was down my throat and went into my stomach, some blood from that tube must have leaked out and gotten in my lungs and caused the pneumonia. It's Not necessarily a common side effect of the surgery, but it is something that can happen in a small number of cases. I was obviously very thankful that it wasn't a blood clot because that would require further surgery, and I was also super thankful that it wasn't COVID. The CT scan showed no clots, but the chest x-ray showed scarring on my lungs, which is why they thought I had COVID. And then the next morning, they confirmed that it for sure wasn't COVID because both of my COVID tests came back negative. And then there was also the fact that because I was the only one in the hospital, I was trying to communicate and relay information to my mom. And then my mom was worrying and I didn't want her to worry. So I was trying to comfort her and she was trying to comfort me. And it was this whole mess. They put me on an intense antibiotic for a week. and then around noon the next day, I was discharged from the hospital. I was so glad to have an answer, and I was just so glad to leave. After I was released from the hospital, my recovery was relatively smooth. Everyone was in a much more comfortable position in regards to how I was healing. And when I say at this point that my recovery is smooth, I'm referring to my physical recovery. I definitely struggled with my mental recovery. The hardest part for me was not being able to sleep. I already have issues falling asleep and staying asleep, and despite being given Valium to help sleep after my surgery, I wasn't able to get a good night's sleep. Between July when I had my surgery and the middle of October I had two nights where I got about six to seven hours of sleep. Other than that, I was running on about two to three hours of sleep a night. So in the last episode, we talked about those four types of symptoms, thinking symptoms, reliving symptoms, arousal or emotion symptoms, and avoidance and numbing symptoms. So thinking symptoms are strong negative beliefs related to your trauma and inaccurate blame placed on yourself or others for causing the trauma. Reliving symptoms are ways of repeatedly experiencing the trauma and include vivid memories or thoughts about the event, nightmares about the content of the event or any related themes, and flashbacks. So flashbacks are basically when you feel disconnected from reality and as though you're experiencing the event as if it were happening again. Arousal or emotion symptoms are emotional or physiological symptoms so increased irritability, anger, or aggression, difficulties concentrating, increased startle response, so being jumpy or easily scared, hypervigilance, vigilance uh, being on guard or watchful, emotional distress when reminded of the trauma, physiological changes, so difficulty breathing, heart pounding, sweating when reminded of the trauma, ongoing negative emotions related to the trauma, so fear, horror, anger, guilt, or shame, difficulty sleeping, so either problems falling asleep or staying asleep, and then avoidance and numbing symptoms. So you might find yourself avoiding things that remind you of the trauma or experiencing lasting feelings of numbness and disconnect, and this can include avoiding thoughts or feelings about the trauma, avoiding people, places, situations, conversations, or things that remind you of the trauma, engaging in reckless or self-destructive behavior, so driving dangerously, overeating, feeling disinterested in activities that were previously meaningful or enjoyable, feeling disconnected from others, difficulty experiencing emotions, and difficulty remembering part of the trauma. One important distinction to make with thinking symptoms, which I forgot to do, is that they drastically change the way you see the world. So you say, okay, people are bad. I can't trust people. People will let me down. Some of the symptoms, Symptoms kind of feel like they could exist in two different categories, and I do find that there is a lot of overlap. But thinking symptoms change how you fundamentally see and look at the world. I think this is very unique, and it's kind of hard to overgeneralize, so that's why I'm trying to frame this in the Framework of my personal experience because that's really all I can talk about is my own experience in the situation and how it affected me Last week We also talked about the different ways that people can get stuck and the different things that prevent people from being able to move forward and Accept their trauma and heal so we did talk about escaping distress through avoidance or emotional numbing We also talked about unhelpful thinking which is tied to the way you think about your trauma and these are basically causes Cognitive distortions. So some examples are hindsight bias, undoing, happily ever after thinking, just world thinking, situational neglect, and blame. So an example of hindsight bias is when you have hindsight bias, you look back on a decision or a situation and you assume that you had the knowledge then that you do now. So in other words, your current understanding is affecting the way you look back on past decisions, situations, or experiences. So the most common example that's used is when you're ordering at a restaurant and you're deciding between two things You're deciding between dish A and dish B you decide to go with dish B you get it you look at it and you think I should have gone with dish A. You're using the information you have now, dish B sitting in front of you, to assume you could have made a different decision in the past. So undoing is wishing your trauma never happened and undoing the event by thinking about alternative actions that would have prevented the event. Happily ever after thinking is similar but it's thinking of an alternate action that would have led to a positive outcome. So with undoing you're trying to prevent the event, with happily ever after thinking you're trying to lead to a positive outcome. Just world thinking is the belief that good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people. Situational neglect is how often we think about uh, what we believe we could have done rather thinking realistically about everything else that happened at that same time. So we tend to focus on ourselves and neglect the situation that we were faced with and not fully appreciate the situational variables that might have influenced our behavior. And blame is when you either place blame on yourself or others for the trauma. So these cognitive distortions are all ways that we try and exert predictability and control over events, but as someone who's experienced trauma, they leave you unable to process the trauma, to accept it, and to move on. So there is a difference, something that I've learned, between acceptance and approval. Just because you accept something has happened doesn't mean you approve of it doesn't mean that you think it's a good thing all you're doing is accepting that it's happened so that you can allow yourself to move on so for me i kind of went into a fight-or-flight mode where i just tried to make it through each day and i was trying to focus on getting better but there were these things happening that i was honestly too exhausted and too emotionally and physically Drained to really be able to process in the moment. And it wasn't until I actually slowed down and fixed my sleep that I was able to be like, okay, this isn't good. We need to work on this. When you're feeling distressed or overwhelmed or intensely anxious, it sometimes can feel like you're not in control of yourself or your emotions. And it feeds itself, right? Because you're emotional because you've just gone through this trauma and then you can't sleep because you've gone through this trauma and because you are emotional and then you Feel irrational which makes you feel emotional again And it becomes this pattern that is so hard to break Because it feels like there aren't any opportunities for a moment of clarity You feel like you're in survival mode. You feel protective of yourself. You feel defensive. You feel afraid of being hurt again I also felt a lot of guilt, you know there was a pandemic and when I thought about myself, I'm doing relatively all right. I shouldn't feel so bad about this. People have it worse. There are people who are suffering more than me. But the thing is, is when guilt is at the forefront of your mind, it's hard to accept what's happened and it's almost impossible to move on. I tried to guilt myself out of feeling this way for literally months and obviously it didn't work. So unless you can let go of that guilt, you're probably going to end up stuck in that vicious cycle for a while. So I kind of experienced a variety of symptoms. I had vivid memories or thoughts for a very long time. Those lasted probably from July until about November. I had one really intense flashback where I was on the subway, and I remember looking at the floor of the subway, but it wasn't the floor of the subway. It was the floor of the hospital room I was in. There was blood around it. My body felt shaky. I had this, like, ringing in my ears where, you know, I couldn't really hear And it was like I was zoned in and super focused and in this moment again. And I had to get off the subway. I had to like sit down on the ground of the station and just like ground myself and remind myself where I was and remind myself that that wasn't real. That was the most intense one I had. It was something I couldn't control. I would just have these thoughts or mental images come up out of nowhere that would almost stop me in my tracks. And I had to be like, this isn't happening Bria, this isn't real, this isn't happening and talk myself out of it or talk myself down from it. And that would be an instance where my heart would start racing, I would get sweaty, I would get shaky, I would feel dizzy, nauseous, anxious. I have also faced a little bit of difficulty breathing and sometimes it would even happen when I was around other people but I wouldn't say anything about it because I didn't really know what it was and I was afraid to acknowledge it and I was afraid to say it was happening because I didn't want people to think that I had like lost my mind. I also had nightmares, which I continue to have. I have nightmares about three or four nights a week. I've kind of just learned to accept them. Every time I go to bed, I go to bed thinking, look, there's probably a high chance that I'm gonna have a nightmare. And unfortunately that's just the way it is right now. But I did find that once I accepted that they were going to happen, it affected me less. It didn't really stop them. The first couple months I had the nightmares, I would wake up in basically a panic attack and I would feel that way for about three to four hours, sweating, like drenched and covered in sweat. It's so gross. I'm sorry, but that's the truth. I wake up smelling terrible after I have these nightmares because I sweat so much. It's nasty. They're always medically related. It's always me in some sort of medical situation not being able to get help. So one of the really common ones I have, which is honestly hilarious, is I'm pregnant and I'm about to give birth and I'm in the cafeteria at a hospital and I'm asking someone for help, but they tell me they can't help me. They have to buy a sandwich. And I've had that one so many times. Like I said, The first couple months I was having these nightmares, that feeling would last for about three to four hours. So usually I was waking up almost on the dot at 3am and I would be in that state, that state of panic from about three until either six or seven in the morning. Now when I wake up from them, I'm in that state for about an hour to two hours. Is that great? No, but it's an improvement. So I have to be thankful for that. So I've also faced some difficulties with concentrating. When I went back to work briefly, I was back at work for about a month and a half before I was let go again. I was having a really hard time focusing at work. And then obviously I've also had some of the avoidance numbing symptoms. I did feel quite disinterested in activities for a while and also difficulty experiencing positive emotions. I spent a lot of time blaming myself, thinking, what if I noticed the pain before I was discharged from the hospital? Then they could have examined me and I could have stayed instead of having to leave and go back. I blamed other people for not asking me if I felt pain in my chest before I left. It's hard to know if that blame is inaccurate or not, but I do know that it doesn't help me move forward. I obviously do have difficulties remembering part of the trauma and I don't know if those memories will come back or if I'll just have Swiss cheese brain forever because I have these holes in my memory. The sweating thing is bad though. Like, isn't it bad enough that I'm an adult with nightmares? Why do you have to make it that I smell like a dirty gym sock when I wake up? I was also struggling to keep up with basic tasks like laundry and grocery shopping. I was struggling to eat. It was physically painful to eat because of my surgery and then I also lost my appetite due to the stress. I found myself to be very emotional. I would just burst into tears and I was being set off by things that normally wouldn't have bothered me. I was very insecure, very irritated. I was having a hard time staying engaged with and connected to the people around me and I was also having a hard time motivating myself to do things that I had previously enjoyed like working out or writing or reading. I couldn't find interest in any activities. So two other things I experienced were hypochondria and then also a fear of the hospital. It doesn't really make sense when I say it because they seem counterintuitive, but basically in September, I went through this really intense period of anxiety and I was convinced that I had all of these conditions. Like I found a little spot or I had an upset stomach and I would immediately think that there was something wrong, I would Google it, WebMD it, which is terrible. Everyone knows it's not the thing to do at all. And then I would get myself in a hyper worried anxious state that something severely wrong was happening within my body. But I made a series of like three to four doctor's appointments over these various concerns that I was convinced were serious life-threatening conditions. And then at the end of September, I had a very bad migraine. I was out with my friend. He was so supportive during this and, you know, was encouraging me to do different activities. So we went canoeing and I got home and I got a headache and I thought it was just from maybe not drinking enough water. So I drank some water, but it got worse and worse. And then at a certain point, I started slurring my words. In my mind, I was trying to speak a clear, cohesive, coherent sentence, but that's not what was coming out. What was coming out was like blabber and I was stumbling and slurring my words. So I then proceeded to start vomiting for about seven hours with one of the most intense migraines I've ever had in my life. I was in the pitch black in my bed with a bowl next to me and I literally couldn't even move like an inch. If I moved, it triggered vomiting. So I called my parents, I'm, of course, hysterically crying. You can just assume that in any bad situation, I'm just bawling my eyes out at this point. I'm like, what else is gonna happen at this point? I'm waiting for like a bird to come fly into my house and shit on my head. So I was crying and my parents were begging me to go to the hospital and I wouldn't go. I refused. I would not go. They asked me to call an ambulance. I said, I'm not going. You can call an ambulance from Vancouver if you want, but I will not get into it because I was so petrified of having to go in an ambulance and be by myself and experience everything again. I was so terrified. So it got to the point where I realized that I had to like figure this out myself. So I gave myself a one-week timeline and I was like, if I don't get one good night of sleep in the next week, then I'm going to the doctor. And I didn't get a good night's sleep that week, so I made an appointment to see a doctor. Because after the migraine incident, I knew how irrationally afraid I was. I was like, it's not normal to be that reactive to the idea of having to go to a hospital or get in an ambulance. Like, what are you gonna do? Shake every time you pass a hospital? You can't live like this, especially in a pandemic. I was just running on autopilot, trying to get through each day, trying to make it through everything, trying to feel normal again without actually attacking the root of the problem. That period feels very fuzzy for me. It almost feels like there's a fog over it. I can't exactly look back on it and remember it super clearly. I remember how I felt. I can't tell if this is overwhelmingly honest and if I'm giving way too much detail. And if you're listening to this and you're like, oh my gosh, I didn't realize how bad this was. It's because also I didn't realize how bad it was until I was a little bit removed from the situation. And I had a very hard time communicating the way I was feeling. And it was so emotionally exhausting to talk about it that I just couldn't even start the conversation. Like every time I tried to talk about what was going on, I would just immediately break down in tears. And I didn't want to have to keep on retelling the stories and talking about the details because it was so draining for me. And I got so lucky. I had the most amazing, compassionate, understanding and caring doctor I've probably ever encountered in my life. And she told me that she was going to help me and that she was willing to keep working with me until I was able to solve this. I told her what I was going through and she told me I was experiencing PTSD. She recommended me to a free online program that's being offered by the province of Ontario called Mind Beacon. If you want more information on that, feel free to send me a message. I'm happy to talk to you about it. I'm happy to talk about my experience using it. And we came up with a plan together. She validated what I was going through. She expressed empathy. She listened. And it was really empowering to have someone believe me and to have someone tell me that they wanted to help me. After I got on sleeping pills and I Started sleeping well after a couple weeks. I started to feel better. I started to feel calmer. I started to feel more level headed. It wasn't until that point that I was really able to process and understand the effects that this had had on me. I wasn't used to feeling so fragile and so sensitive, and I didn't really know how to deal with it. So, we talked about how PTSD is a response to traumatic life events. So, risk factors for a person being at a higher risk for developing PTSD can include experiencing dangerous events and trauma in the past, having a history of mental health or substance abuse problems, feeling helplessness or extreme fear, having a small support system after the traumatic event, feeling guilt, shame, or responsibility for the event or its outcome, and experiencing additional stress after the event. So the loss of a loved one, pain, injury, loss of a job, loss of a home, things like that. And for me, I had this feeling like, why is my brain so bad at dealing with trauma? Why is my brain unable to process and deal with this trauma? What I realized is I think probably more people experience this, but we're just not talking about it. So one question I had when I started this process was, is PTSD something you recover from? Or is it just something that you have forever? And what I was told is that you can recover from PTSD. Some people recover in six months. Other people take longer. Everyone's experience is different. So I I've found success in dealing with my PTSD through cognitive behavioral therapy, which basically changes how you think and how you act. In the view of cognitive behavioral therapy, your thoughts, behaviors, and feelings are all connected. So if you want to change how you feel, the first step is to examine your thoughts and behaviors to understand how those might be affecting your feelings. So your perception, the way you see the world, is what shapes your reality. And once you find yourself in a cycle of anxious or negative thoughts, behaviors and feelings as well, you can feel trapped. And it's a hard habit to break, but in the view of cognitive behavioral therapy, this can obviously be done. So the way I looked at it personally was, do I want to deal with this short term or do I want to deal with this long term? I had to sit with myself and think, okay, do I wanna feel uncomfortable for three months or do I wanna be dealing with the residual effects of this for three years? And obviously I picked the three month option because I would rather work on this every day and do my stupid assignments and do my relaxation exercises and do gratitude journals every week and cry in the shower for a couple months and then be able to actually move on. Trauma is a very physical thing. I didn't realize that until I had to go back to the hospital where I had my surgery and where I ended up back in the ER. I went there to have two small screws removed from my face. They were semi-permanent ones and I had to have them taken out after my surgery. I didn't really feel anything at first and then I realized that I was shaking. My whole body was shaking, my hands were shaking and I left and I was shaking like that all day. Trauma is such a physical thing. Look, I have shame and embarrassment about so many things, but I refuse to have shame and embarrassment about this. I love that one of the main principles of cognitive behavior therapy is that you cannot blame yourself for your trauma. Like, I love anything that allows me to take blame away from myself. That's amazing to me. But also, I think about my brain as a computer, and sometimes computers need to be restarted. Sometimes computers malfunction, and that's okay. Sometimes you spill coffee on your computer, computer and it needs to be repaired. Sometimes you have to do a force restart on your brain. It doesn't mean there's anything wrong with you. It just means that your system got a little bit overwhelmed. Look, I'm doing everything I can to try to deal with this. I'm doing therapy. I started running, which I hate. I'm stretching daily. I'm doing a gratitude journal. I'm trying to meditate. I've even tried sleep hypnosis. I've done journaling. I'm reading books about this. But the good news is I'm doing so much better and I'm feeling so much better. And it took a lot of work and it took a lot of patience with myself, which I literally have never had. And it's been one of the biggest lessons I've learned from myself is be gentle and patient and kind with yourself, which I hate doing. I'm not good at it at all, but it's a process. One thing that was super simple that I learned Is that healing is not linear. You can be moving forward but still feel sad or anxious but that doesn't mean that you haven't made progress and that doesn't mean that you aren't gonna see positive effects down the line. Once I was able to get a hold of that and grasp that as a concept, it made things so much easier for me. I'm still gonna have anxious days. I'm still gonna have sad days. I'm still gonna have nightmares. But that doesn't mean that I'm not better off now than I was three months ago. Those little setbacks or those difficult dates don't negate all the progress. I've definitely learned a lot from this experience like I wish we talked about mental health in more of a preventative way instead of a reactive way for example if you're having surgery being told in advance look surgery can be traumatic these are the signs and symptoms you should look out for and this is what you should do if you start experiencing them because you could be suffering from PTSD warning people ahead of time so that if it does happen makes it less scary because then you know and it makes it easier it's less lonely less frightening But we're such a treat it when it explodes culture and I just think that's the wrong message to send I think we should be constantly working on our mental health whether we're happy or whether we're sad I also do want to quickly acknowledge my privilege despite the challenges I faced I still function in society with a lot of privilege and my ability to access mental health support is still privileged I know trauma is complex and access to mental health services is very unequal and it's such a daunting task, you know every therapist whose client list was full, every rejection I got was so disheartening. It does take time to find someone that works for you. And it's so unfortunate because everyone deserves access to mental health resources. I do have a lot of free resources that I've collected and I would be glad to send them your way if you need them. So please just send me a message. This episode is really special to me. I really hope you enjoyed it and I'll have another episode out on Saturday for Valentine's Day. If you do have any questions you want to ask me, feel free to send me a message and I can tackle them in that episode. Any topics you want me to hit, I will cover those too. Thank you so much for continuing to listen, rating this podcast, reviewing this podcast, sharing this podcast. It means so much to me. I had a full existential meltdown after I posted the first part of this and I was like, why did I do this? So thank you for all the kind messages. I really love getting them. They were very needed. Do not underestimate how much I need your kind words, okay? I'm very codependent that way. Okay, bye.